the Lord in prayer, and then we'll begin uh, the message from there. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name this morning, thankful for the Word of God and the Spirit of God that can lead us and guide us into your precious truth. Thank you, Lord, for all you've done for us this week, brought us together. Our hearts go out to those that aren't able to be with us because of uh, sickness or injury or um, whatever, recover from surgery and others that are on vacation. We know all about it. You know all about it. But we're here to hear from heaven. So, Lord, endow us, if you would, with your spirit as we speak, that all things would work to your glory and honor. We just praise you for all you do for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I, I kind of played with the, the subject title this morning, but the subject is God Knows the End before the beginning. And I didn't know they were going to sing a song, the second of, uh, verse of the song that the sisters sang. Um, says, time and um, God knows the beginning from the end. Amen? He knows the beginning and the end in the second verse of that particular song. Well, this morning I want to talk about the fact that God does know the end even before the beginning. That's how smart God is. I want to roll back and just give you a, a scripture that will kind of set the tone for thinking that way since we talked about Job last week. In the first couple chapters of Job, we found the word askew. That means um, hate or turn your back on or don't have anything to do with evil. And uh, now we're going to the last chapter, chapter 42. In verse 12, I want to just read this one. Um, as to what uh, uh, God's told Job, and then I'll kind of explain a little bit, and then I'll get going in first gear then. So the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than the beginning. For he had, and it tells how many, and, uh, uh, camel and oxen and uh, uh, donkeys and sons and daughters and on and on. That it, because if you remember at the beginning... Uh, the devil came to him and took all those things from him. Um, it was, if you would, a ploy of the devil to try to get him to turn his back on God, and he never did. I want to show you something about that. In this particular verse, it starts out Job talking to his friends, but if you get down into verse number 7, now the Lord is speaking. I don't know if you realize that as you read it as just as a book or as a story. And when the Lord starts speaking, he speaks to the friends of Job there. And he said, um, in that verse, says, For ye have not spoken the things that is right as my servant Job has. And he goes on to set the record straight. And that's um, when God decided, if you would, I'm going to bless him with more in the end than he had in the beginning. When did that happen? Mark this down. I told you you need to write down the notes on this one in your, in your bulletins. It says in verse number 10, the Lord turned the captivity of Job, get it? When he prayed for his friends. Not for himself. Oh, Lord, bless me like I've never been blessed before. He didn't pray that. He prayed for his friends that for 42 chapters, if you would, have been trying to convince him that he was wrong in everything he did. As 
And he says, as he prayed for his friends, also the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. See, God knows the end before the beginning. Amen? Well, I'm thankful that uh, we can stand true even in the tests and trials that come our way. Now, many times throughout history, how long is history? History, I guess that we have to say just for man's history as we know it from a biblical standpoint goes back to the Garden of Eden. All right, so that's all I can study as far as history from God's Word. Now, I realize there are people that want to look at fossils and dinosaurs and, and roam all over and Neanderthals and the, you know all the different titles and all the different things for different people and where they were at. Um, there's a lot of things people want to use and they even use carbon footprints and carbon testing and carbon this and they'll tell you six million years ago this happened and that. I don't know anything about that. I mean I, I did go to Ohio State University and I took a course in uh, biology that I had to know all those facts and figures. I got an A in the course. That's pretty good, ain't it? Five-hour course, you get an A for, that really helps your GPA. Hey, you're looking sharp now. The only thing is, I learned it, and I put it on paper and got an A for it and didn't believe a word of it. I chose to believe God's word over what the professor was teaching in Biology 101 at Ohio State University. So when we look at history, it's always been proven that God's way is the best way. There has never been a time when God was wrong. There's never been a time God was on the wrong side of history. There's never been a time when God gave counsel to somebody that would, if they'd have followed it, wouldn't have in the end been prosperous for them. That's not the way God works. Now as we, as Americans, take time to observe the 4th of July, we call it Independence Day. Because our history in America shows that we had some people that were willing to stand up against the wrong and fight for what is right, and with God's blessings, they found freedom from the oppression that would take advantage of the goodness of God's people. Can I tell you something? There are people that will take advantage of Christians on, in a New York second. Amen? I know that. I've been pastoring long enough that I know every time my phone rings, it's not somebody wanting to say, praise the Lord. But I get calls on a pretty much regular basis wanting me to pay their rent, buy them gas, pay their utilities. Uh, I guess they think we're Faith Christian Fellowship First Bank of the United States of some sort. We got money rolling all over ourselves and just sitting here waiting on somebody to call so we can give it away. Well, we would not be good stewards of what God has given us if we did that. Amen? Now, I know how to, to talk to them. After about 26 years, I've learned how to handle them, and of course uh, there are people all over our country now. You drive downtown Cincinnati and they all got cardboard signs and they all know where to sit to, to beg or whatever they need. We left the ball game yesterday on our way back to the car and there's a guy standing there with a great big cardboard sign. 
that said, I'm not going to lie, I just want money for beer. Man. Hello, you know. Uh, but, you know, that's, that's different than the ones that say I'm homeless and starving to death and everything, and they're about 80 pounds overweight. But nonetheless, uh, you learn not everybody, and, and, you know, people just take advantage of the goodness of God. And I know American people are pretty gullible towards that, and a lot of us have more money in our pocket than probably than we need, I think, you know. You know how I know? They had a split the pot thing going on. You know what split the pot means at a ball game? People buy tickets, and you put your money in, and if your number, your ticket comes up, you get half the pot. The other half goes towards whatever the, the Reds are sponsoring then. They had a split the pot that's up over $200,000. So evidently, out of the crowd of 40,000 that was there, somebody had $200,000 extra. That's after all the drinks and off the eats and after all the other things they bought and paid for and parking and tickets. Um, it's expensive. And yet, they had an extra 200000 come in from somewhere. 200000 Hmm. That might pay off your mortgage. Oh, maybe not. All right. Nonetheless, people take advantage of Christians on every hand. Honest people. You know why? Because we're honest and we look at other people and respect them as honest. And we want them to respect us as being honest. And we want to do what God's considered right for us to do. And we do that and people want to take advantage. Amen? All right. Well, would people want to take advantage of the goodness of God? How did these people know? that God would be with them in the end and help them prosper because he's done it so many times before. All right, this morning, I want to take a journey with you through the world's history from God's viewpoint of Scripture. Go back to the garden. That's where it started. With Adam and Eve in the garden... What a great beginning they had. Little did they know that they were going to go down as famous names in history for people 6,000 years later, us, are going to be talking about Adam and Eve and what they did in the Garden of Eden. Amen. What else could they have wanted? God gave them fruit. He gave them animals. He gave them everything they needed. The only thing he said was there's one thing I don't want you to do. Ah, oh, one thing. Everything else is wonderful. But God in his wisdom when he created man gave him the ability to choose. You have that ability to choose between right and wrong. Those that choose to do things the way God asked them to, in the scriptures, always seem to be blessed. We read about it in Sunday school. And those that don't do it God's way, they choose to go contrary to God. Seemingly, they're the ones that suffer loss. And you can see in your mind as you just scroll through what takes place in the history of scripture to know that's true. Amen? In every chapter of history, 
God's been there for his people. But every chapter of history, God has allowed the enemy of God, that's the devil or Satan, whatever you want to call him, to have his way, if you would, in trying to tempt mankind to make a different choice than what God would prefer they choose. We found that in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve had everything they needed to remain in fellowship with God. Scripture says he came down in the cool of the day. He brought the air conditioning. Came down in the cool of the day and had a conversation with them. But then one day things changed. God did put limits on all their prosperity in the garden based on their choices. But they said to them, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Don't touch it. Stay away from it. Don't even get it close to it. Don't get around it. Don't even go down and smell it. Don't even go down and do anything. Amen? Now, I don't know what the tree of knowledge and good and evil looks like, but in my yard, I've got a tree that's planted last year, and everybody goes by, points at it, says, look at that stick he's growing. Because it's dead on the door now. My friend Mike came over and made fun of my tree this week. What's that stick doing in your yard? Amen? Well, I didn't choose for it to die. It just did. But the tree of knowledge of good and evil, God said, don't touch it. Why not? What's wrong with that tree? We can touch every other tree. We can eat of every other tree. We can do everything in the garden we want except one tree. Huh. Well, there's no reason that God said, don't do that, is there? So since God gave men the ability to choose, Adam and Eve took advantage of that choice, and Satan allowed them to say, yay, if you really want to be smart, you need to go over and try that tree out. Well, Adam and Eve disobeyed. Scripture says they suffered the consequences for what they went and did at that place in the garden. Now, we don't know a whole lot about Adam and Eve beyond that. They're only in the first few chapters of uh, the Old Testament. And we're, I'm assuming that they learned their lesson. Amen? I mean, how many times you got to burn yourself before you learn fire's hot? Right? And I'm sure uh, they felt bad after they realized they had disobeyed God and the consequences for that. But in reality, God knew the end before the beginning. From there, God gave future generations choices again. Be blessed of God and walk in the things he gives us to walk in or reject the things of God and suffer the consequences. Well, we can fast forward up through the Old Testament. We'll come to uh, a few other people along the way. I, I know that in Genesis 6 and 8, the Bible says that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now all of you have been to the Creation Museum, right? Pretty much. If you don't, you know about it anyway. You know that God asked him to build an ark. Amen. Wow, come on, God, an ark? In the middle of the desert where it's never rained before? And you're telling me there's coming a flood? I don't know if I can even take that in or not. 
To them, to him that might have seemed, if you would, as far-fetched as that one tree having a bad result for Adam and Eve. It says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. In Noah's day, in Noah's day evil had prevailed at such a pace that God repented in Genesis 6, 6 that he'd even made man. Amen. Now, I know some of us have kids that we think. Yeah? Well, now you know how God feels when his people sin. Amen? What are them kids of mine doing? You know? Holy mackerel. So, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and he was blessed of God. Why? Because of his righteous choices. While the world around him was evil continually, the scripture says, God asked Noah to build an ark to the saving of him and his family. Now, I don't know if you've seen that ark or not. It's a pretty good-sized boat down there in Kentucky. That's supposed to be a true replica of that. They have satellite images, I've heard, from NASA in Russia, in some of those mountains in Russia, where they think this ark actually stopped and came to a halt, and uh, it's still there, but it's uh, buried under a whole lot of other stuff that's been going on for the last several thousand years. But they won't allow anybody to go in like archaeologists to check it out. But nonetheless, they think that's where it is. Amen. Was there an enemy in the production of what Noah was doing when he built this ark? You better say, I reckon. The scripture says that the people around him made fun of him on a daily basis. I can just see them now. They were probably selling tickets. Let's go down and watch that idiot build a boat in the middle of the desert. You want to go down there and have a good life? Come on, let's go down to the comedy club and watch them build an ark. Yeah? Let's go have a good laugh. Yeah. Well, there he was. But as we see from history... God knew the end before the beginning. Amen. Noah was right. Amen? All right. And what was Noah end up with? He was blessed more in the end than he was in the beginning. As mankind, you and me, we, know, we owe our existence to Mr. Noah. Because if he had not obeyed God and God would have sent the flood, not only would everybody else be gone, so would Noah and his family, and therefore we would have no heritage for us to stand. Oh, man, isn't that something? But God knew the end before the beginning. Amen. Next, if you file down through, if you want to go that way, there was a man named Abram. God talked to him. And ask him, say, why don't you uh, move to a land? I like you, and you're a nice guy, and you're following my commands. If you like, I'm going to guide you to a country. And in that country, I want you to raise me up a group of people that will follow me. So he got his wife and, and his nephew Lot, and they packed up some, some uh, things on their donkeys or camels or however they moved along there. 
and they went to this new country because God had promised him, if you do this, you're going to have more children than there is sand on the seashore. How many of you ever took time to count how many grains of sand on the seashore? Or he said, even at that, you're going to have more children than there are stars in the sky. Amen? Well, at this point, he had zero. No children. So if there was only one star, that's more than he had. But as he looked up, he knew God had promised him a great life ahead and plenty of blessing if he would walk faithful in the things God wanted him to do. So he obeyed uh, God, took his wife and his nephew, and they headed for the blessings of God that God had for them in a promised land. But once again, the devil enters the picture to dis try to discourage the man of God that wants to lead, uh, be led to the promised land that God had for him and with the, his followers and all those that went with him. But God knew the end before the beginning. Once they got to that land that God had promised them, God blessed them so much that they began to fuss and fight. Lot had his group of herdsmen and his shepherds, and Abram had his set, and God blessed both flocks and all the cattle and all the herds and everything so much that they thought they'd run out of grass for them. So he said, you know what, we better split up because they're fighting over who's going to do what and who's going to eat and who's going to go where. So uh, they decided to split. And Abram said to Lot, you go whichever way you want, and I'll go the other way. Let's put some distance between us so we won't be fighting so much. And Lot looked down in the valley. He said, wow, look at that grass and those rivers that flow down there. I'm taking that part. So they went off to the valley, and of course, Abram went the other direction. But God still was blessing both of them. The problem that they ran into was the other folks that lived in the valley that Lot chose to go to. Huh. Wow. Wonder what happens down in that valley. Well, just like everything else, when God blesses beyond abundance, it doesn't take long after that decision that the devil has sown wickedness in the hearts of all the people around Lot and his family. And God saw fit to send angels to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah because of the wickedness there. Abram saw the angels, if you would. The scripture calls them angels. Uh, I call them destroying angels. I think that's what the scripture would give us an uh, inkling into, that uh, he wanted to go and, and negotiate for Lot. He loved Lot. Him and Lot had been together for a long time. They'd grown up and seen everything come uh, in each other's herds and wanted to help each other be the best they could be, if you would, for God. And Lot really was a nice guy, if you would. He was trying to do his best for God, raising his wife and family right, but the people around him just weren't that nice of people. Amen? So Abram sits down with these angels and gives them a meal and ask them where they're going. He said, well, we're going down to destroy this city because there's, no, there's nobody there that's doing God's will. 
And he said, well, what if you found 45 righteous down there? Would you, store, would you save the city? Oh, yeah, we'd save it for 40. He negotiated, how about 30? How about 20? How about 10? Oh, for 10, we'll leave, leave the city alone. We won't go. Guess what? They couldn't find 10. They found four. And they took them by the hand and let them out. And one of them turned back. So you can see how the world's influence can be even on God's people when they know what God wants them to do. So as we look on this scenario, we know that God knew the end before the beginning and set his family, Lot and his family, out of the city and then he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And I studied the history on that. Actually, there were eight cities in that valley that got destroyed. Not just Sodom and Gomorrah, but they were, if you would, the major cities. It'd be like saying uh, Dayton and Cincinnati got destroyed, but in the meantime, they took out Middletown and Springboro and Kettering and Evendale, and you, you could go down the whole list, if you would. Uh, because they, if you would, weren't on the map as big as Sodom and Gomorrah. So when we move on farther into the history about this great nation that God had promised Abram, Sarah now um, was interested in doing God's will, but she hadn't had any children. She was getting old. Amen. She's getting up there about my age or a little more. And so she, being childless, she tried to help God along. Dangerous territory for you and I to try to help God achieve his goals. So what he do? He gave her handmaid, Hagar, to uh, her husband, Abram, and let her... Uh, have a child by him hoping that'd be the child maybe that God was promising but it wasn't it wasn't the child uh, that uh, God wanted him to have he wanted to bless them with a son named Isaac and not with a child named Ishmael of course from that a great nation has grown up from Ishmael's roots if you would and guess what it's done for Israel as a country? It's been a thorn in their side for thousands of years. Amen. Brother was reading some scriptures in, in Matthew 24 this morning in Sunday school. He said, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. Yeah, and most of them's been in Israel. So, and they've been all over the world and they haven't stopped yet. Uh, wasn't it just recently they had to fire up their, what they call it, silver dome or whatever and stop all these bombs that were coming in and uh, still trying to destroy that part of the country over again. Again, it brought more problems than it did solutions when she bare that son of Ishmael. But eventually God kept his word. Sarah had a child and his name was Isaac. Through Isaac, the children of Israel were starting to come together. You want to have as many kids as the stars in the sky? You got to start with one and build from there. Well, Isaac had a son named, or had twin sons named uh, Jacob and Esau. We know about their struggle again. 
what's going on, which one got the blessing of God. Jacob got his name even changed to Israel because he was the one that went and had, if you would, 12 children. Now, it took four wives to do it, or two wives and, a, and a, some handmaids, but he had 12 children, so we went from one now to two, the twins. Then we went from the twins. Now we got 12 that God's trying to bless to get us to where we should be. And those 12 are what the scriptures refer to as the 12 tribes of Israel. Amen. There was a struggle with the 12 boys. And one of them, God gave him a dream that one day the older sons was going to bow to him. You know what that does? Uh, yeah, I know how that works. I, I used to, to work at a, a job one time, and we were all, if you would, on the same level as far as working in the shop. And then I got a promotion to service manager. Well, a couple of the other guys thought they were smarter than me, and they should have been service manager. Guess what it ended up doing? <laughs> Ruined everything for everybody. Because they didn't want to listen to me. I'm smart as him. I know more than him. They didn't want to uh, do things the boss's way because they thought they should be the boss. Well, guess what? Joseph was just doing what God laid on his heart, and the rest of them were jealous because he got a promotion they didn't get. Right, Mike? Amen. Watch out for that jealousy. Amen. So here we go. He, they got him, and they sold him and sent him down to Egypt for 30 pieces of silver. Isn't that, don't that ring a bell? Anyway, as he's gone, uh, there's still a, the promise of Canaan land for Abram and his people, or for Israel and his people, not Abram, uh, Jacob and his people, and they get to where there's a famine. They don't have anything to eat. Well, God knew the end before the beginning. He already had a son planted in Egypt that not only knew how to follow God, but he knew how to get God's people where God wanted them to be. Of course, he had a dream of the seven, you know, Pharaoh did of seven fat cows and seven skinny cows and the whole, you know, the whole thing, dream. And, and nobody could uh, satisfy Pharaoh as to what that dream meant except Joseph. So he told him, i tell you what's going to happen. It's going to be seven years where everything's going to produce like crazy. We're going to have way more than we thought we was going to get in this harvest. More cows, more sheep, more corn, more everything. Then there's going to come seven years when ain't nothing going to happen. So what you need to do, Pharaoh, according to the the dream that God gave me, he told me to tell you, you need to store up in these seven good years enough to get everybody through and even the countries around us through the seven bad years. Sounds like a plan to me. Pharaoh said, you know what? That sounds like a good plan, and I think I'll just put you in charge of it. And so he took and put all the store up, gathered all the goods, kept piling them up, piling them up, and when the seven bad years came, things got rough. But in Egypt, everybody had more than enough to eat. 
Well, Jacob and his uh, family were about to starve to death, so he sends a couple of the older boys to Egypt with uh, uh, a wagon train, I guess you'd say, or a way of hauling goods back home. They went down to purchase some from Egypt and bring them back. When they got down there, Joseph recognized his brothers, but they didn't recognize him. So he took care of their situation, if you would, but he did it in a conniving kind of way and not allowing them to know who he really was. And of course he accused them of a couple of things and all, but this was all in the plan of God. See, God knows the end before the beginning. Eventually all of Jacob and all of his kids, grandkids and great grand, they all got in a train and ended up down in the Goshen land, down in Egypt because of the prosperity that happened when uh, Joseph took care of the situation. So now God's people are being fed. They're getting fat. They've got plenty of room for their animals. They've got plenty of room to grow. Uh, after all, we've got to remember, God's still saying there are going to be as many as the stars in the sky and sand on the sea. And God wants to bless them but he wants to bless them in the land he promised them. They're not in the promised land at this particular time. And so they get down there, and everything is so good. Amen. They don't want to go back home. Amen. You ever went on vacation? Yeah, and then you dread to go back home, don't you? Uh, it's so good here, I'm not going back for nothing. Well... I've not ever been on one of those vacations, but I can about imagine there are people that have been. Amen. All right, so if you lived in Alaska, you'd probably enjoy a couple weeks in Florida in the middle of the winter. But that's just the way we are as humans. But God needs a man now as time rolls on to get his people off their easy chairs and get them back to the promised land. They're doing so well but as one Pharaoh dies and another Pharaoh takes the stand, he doesn't remember Joseph. He doesn't remember Jacob. All he wants to do is take those people that are in his land and make slaves out of them. Make them work for the, the good of Egypt's country. So God has a man born. Now the Pharaoh says, if you see any male children born, I want you to get rid of them because I don't want Israel's army to be stronger than Egypt's army. So that was kind of Pharaoh's plan, but God had a different one. There was a baby named Moses born, and even though Pharaoh hated Hebrew children, his daughter brought one home and adopted it and raised it right under his nose until he was a full-grown man named Moses. How about that stuff? Amen. But see, God knows the end before the beginning. Amen. So here's Moses. He is uh, living under Pharaoh's roof, if you would. Uh, his daughter is the one that's raising him. But this Moses will have to flee Egypt, and then God will have to call him to deliver God's people and take them back, if you would, to the promised land. You know the story. He saw 
one of the Egyptians beating up on one of the Hebrew people. He stepped in and, and put it on him pretty tough, actually killed him and buried him in the sand. But through all of that, we know that uh, God's hand was on him and he had to leave Egypt and go get a job somewhere else. Well, uh, Pharaoh, in all of this, was kind of upset about what's going on in his land, and he didn't want those people to uh, leave. He wanted to work them as slaves and do whatever he felt was best for them. But God called Moses when he heard the prayer of his promised people in Egypt. As they struggled with the slavery and the bondage, God talked to Moses about going back and getting his people and leading them out of uh, Pharaoh's bondage back into where he would have them be in the promised land. Amen? But Pharaoh wouldn't let God's people out of that slavery. So Moses and Aaron, his brother, visited Pharaoh several times. Each time they came, I can just see Pharaoh say, Ah, here they come again. I wonder what bad news they got now. If it's not flies, it's lice or locusts or blood or whatever. Uh, these guys never have any good news. But it was because Pharaoh would not listen to the voice of God. All right? So in the end, after all the plagues, uh, then God said, This is the last one. It's called the Passover. And of course, all of us that are Bible students know about that. Pharaoh, uh, then at the Passover, were the first born in every house in Egypt died the night of the Passover. Of course, we could get into the Passover more, but I, you probably know all about that pretty well. Uh, but nonetheless, the next day, every household in Egypt had to plan a funeral. There was wailing and crying and grieving all over Egypt, even in Pharaoh's house. And Pharaoh was so mad about it, he told Moses, get your people out of my land now. Go, get out of here. Well, that was God's plan of bringing them to the promised land because God knows the end before the beginning. Amen? Well, he later thought about, wait, who's going to make my bricks? How am I going to build pyramids? How am I going to do all this stuff? What's going on here? So he decided to go back after God's people again. They ran to the Red Sea, and that was the end of Pharaoh's army. Again, God blessed his people, even though they still, in time to time in the scriptures, remembered how good they had it in Egypt. So what God have to do? He had to feed them every day. What did he feed them? Manna every day quail every day. Then they complained they didn't have enough water. So he gives them water from the rock. God took care of all the things they needed to make things happen. But because of their unbelief, they had to, if you would, wander in the desert for 40 years when they could have come to the land of milk and honey within a matter, a short period of time. Amen? So they took back eventually... After 40 years, they came after Moses passed on. A guy named Joshua took the reins 
and he led them into the promised land. They crossed the Jordan River, came to a town called Jericho. They took Jericho and just kept on taking the land that God promised them they needed to take. Once they were settled in the land, the people decided, we've got it made now. We've got our land back. We're doing great. And they made one more mistake. You know what it was? They wanted a king, just like all the other nations have. And Samuel said, no, you don't want a king. He's going to tax you. He's going to take your money. He's going to take all your children and make them fight in his army. You don't want all of that. Well, we found out being in Americans, that's part of what we have to do, you know. So uh, they gave us a king just like everyone else had, even though... Uh, uh, Samuel give them a warning not to. So they ended up with a guy named Saul. You know how they picked him? He was head and shoulders bigger than anybody else. Did you know that? And the scripture even said he was a pretty good looking fella. Amen. See, you can't judge by looks, see? Not even your pastor. You can't go by looks, Betty. Come on. All right. We have to make sure we're following where God wants us to go. As we found out in Saul, because he made some wrong choices, and he was a big coward. Um, now, I don't blame him for being scared of Goliath, but David wasn't. See, what he did is took his eyes off of what the Lord could do with him, and he decided he had to do it on his own strength, and he knew he didn't have enough strength to beat Goliath. But David said, no, this battle's not mine. It's the Lord's, and we can win it. And he stoned him, right? there and cut his head off and then Israel again prospered over the Philistines. Well, since David um, became, if you would, the next in line for the kingship uh, as God did it, as we're looking down through history here, and David uh, led many battles and many victories for God, but yet even David fell to uh, adultery, fell into if you would, murderous schemes and had Uriah uh, not killed himself but put him in a position he knew he would not survive. And then David took his wife to be his wife. Amen. But when he came to his senses, I'm talking about David, and found grace in God's eyes, as he ages, he passes on to his son Solomon to seek God's ways. You know, when you start reading, and I've been reading recently in the book of Chronicles, and you'll find where all the different kings, it tells he, this king was there 20 years old, and he reigned for 30 years, and next king, and the next king. And it tells you the ones that did good in the sight of God and the ones that didn't. You know what the standard was? If you read it, the standard was, did he do as good as his father David? Did you follow the rules like God gave David and follow them just like David did? Well, David messed up, but he did get his life squared around and got going right with God. Even Solomon, as wise as he was, he was doing Israel a great favor in being their king and in using the wisdom that God gave him. And yet, because he had so many wives, the scripture says his wives turned him towards their idols. In so doing, God had to reject, if you would, what Solomon was trying to get done because of that. 
you look at the kings that came after, Jeroboam, Rehoboam, Asa, and, uh, just, I'll tell you the names I can say. The rest of them we, don't, we won't even try to pronounce. But all those kings that followed, you know what it would say about them? Oh, this one was evil. He did just like Ahab. This one was good. He did like his father David. Even though he's generations down the line from David. God, if you would set up a standard based on that, uh, whether they were good or evil. Amen? But then we get, if you would, to the end of what we'd call Israel's history. King after king, some good, some evil. But God, knowing the end before the beginning, kind of got tired of putting up with bad kings or good kings or whatever. They got so bad at one point, he had to get a sinner named Nebuchadnezzar to go down and capture all of them, take them all to Babylon so they could find out how to get back in touch with God and get back on track with him. So after all of that, they get back to Jerusalem after Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, you know the story of that. God, knowing the end before the beginning, finally sent his only begotten son through a virgin named Mary. From there, Jesus did the will of God and established salvation for all those whosoever will, but it was not without opposition. Jesus was combated on every side by the religion, religious people of the day and the evil of his day. He had to do his best to stand as to where God wanted him to stand. But as the sacrificial Passover lamb for all mankind, Jesus was crucified, laid in a tomb, raised from the dead, ascended back to heaven to sit on the right hand of the Father in heaven. Salvation by grace through faith has now been established. Everyone now cannot blame, if you would, anything that goes wrong in their life on a king, on a prophet, and even a pastor. Everybody now, since Jesus Christ left this earth, has to stand on their own two feet individually before God. But remember, God knows the end before the beginning. Amen? Well, we find even after Christ left, we know about the history of Asia. We know about the history of Europe. A lot of that is documented in volumes and volumes of books. And yet, the truth still stands. Those that choose to do God's will are blessed, but not without opposition. Remember, in history, you could probably name them right along with me. Some of them that popped into my head as I was thinking on this of those that really took a stand for God down through history. I remember in uh, reading a lot about uh, Billy, uh, um, about uh, Martin Luther, George Whitfield, Billy Sunday, Sunday, Billy Graham, and many, 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 many more that stood for God even in the opposition of what the devil was going to throw those ways, our ways. But for us today, history records those that choose to come to America in the 
17th century, 16th, 17th century, they came because of the oppression of a king. Amen. They threw a tea party. Now that wasn't that they had tea and they left their little finger up as they sipped their cups. No, they went on the boat and threw the tea off the boat into the Boston Harbor in rebellion of the fact that they didn't want to pay tax on that tea to a king in England. Well, that started a whole other chapter, if you would, of what's going on. Everybody fleed or fled from, from Europe and Asia. They came to America for freedom and liberty. When they got here, for the most part, they banded together. Amen. I've read books on it, and I've even got a book here I recommend if anybody wants to read it by David Gibbs. I've got another one somewhere I was looking for, couldn't find it. I even looked in the office here, but eventually I'll find it. It's somewhere in the millions of books I got. I shouldn't exaggerate, but I do. I've got a lot of them, but I couldn't find it. But there are some things that we are recorded in history and we found out even when I was reading this book I was astonished there were some Presbyterian brethren there were some brethren brethren there were some Quaker brethren there was all kinds of Dutch involved in coming to America looking for the freedom and liberty they want but when it come to establishing a constitution and giving if you would America a new birth on July 4th, 1776, you'll find that they all agreed this is what we need. They all came together. They had small differences. They were so small it didn't amount to nothing compared to what it was going to take to establish America. They wrote a constitution. They signed that constitution knowing it would probably cost them everything they owned I'm talking about every worldly thing they owned and maybe even their own lives in signing that Constitution but they believed it and they believed it was God's will and they get, gladly gave all they had to see it come to pass so the same way God used his people from from the very beginning he knew God would use them as they were signing this, if you would, Declaration of Independence to see God's will done for us in America. So as I read this story, I want you to know it's by an attorney named David Gibbs, Jr. Um, he runs a law office for just Christian services. That's all he wants. He's not going to take a case where you're fighting over who hit who first at a four-way stop. But if it's a legal matter, and I'm on his mailing list, and monthly, I get prayer requests from this law, uh, Christian Law Association, where they represent Christians and churches all over America free. They don't charge anybody. And they will help in any lawsuit you get in, and they will take that case if it has to be stood up for as a Christian right or privilege. Amen? They're not interested in all the other things. So if you get caught drinking and driving for the eighth time and you got to go to jail, don't call them because they're not going to take your case. Amen? Well, I want you to know in this book that I read, he points out the history of how America came to be and he uses Bible principles to show why 
They did what they did when they established um, what we call the greatest country in the world. Today, the USA must be the best country because they're coming from everywhere to try to get here. They all want a part of the American dream. Whether they have to do it by hook or crook, or whether they can do it with legal means as far as work visas or green cards or whatever else legally, um, everybody wants a part of the American dream. Our Constitution is what makes our country the great country that it is, even though many today are trying to tear down parts of it or try to even do with it away with it altogether. As Christians, we need to stand for God. Help make our country the best it can be for God. Amen. Because God knows the end before the beginning. I'm going to turn over to Proverbs and read a scripture there. In Proverbs 7 and 8, It says, all the words of my mouth are in... That's not the right one, is it? That's 8 and 7. I went 7 and 8. No. I still got the wrong one. Oh, I lost it anywhere. Where is it? <laughs> what did I write down, Mike? 7 and 8? That's not it. Ah. Maybe I can find it here. Well, I don't know. Maybe I won't. Da -da. Oh, it said was God knows the end before the beginning, but I I wrote down the wrong scripture for me and for Mike. I'm sorry. I'll have to go back home and look it up in my notes back home. Anyway, God gives a... Uh, admonition to us in every way we look at it throughout his word if you follow me I'll bless you and the end will be better than the beginning turn with me to Ephesians I know this one's right because I didn't even have to write it down I knew this one Ephesians the sixth chapter we teach this to all of our kids that come to kids camp we teach it to everywhere we go but in I just want to read it and then I'll point out a couple of things and we'll call today because it's a holiday and I know you're getting time and a half for that listening to me today. In, in Ephesians 6 and 10, it says, Finally, brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. See, you're always going to have opposition. Everywhere you go, if you stand for God, somebody's going to fight against you. You may not even know it, but they're fighting against you and laying plans. That's what wiles mean. They're scheming against you. They're planning on taking you out while you're sleeping, while you're working, while you're not really paying a whole lot of attention. If you're standing for God, they're coming against you. Verse 12, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, you know what that means, don't you? Based on what I just said, all this thing's coming against you. Wherefore, take unto you 
the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having all, having done all to stand, stand therefore, having your loins girded about with truth. These are not physical armor. This is spiritual armor. Stand having your loins girded about with truth, having, your breast, having the breastplate of righteousness, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you may be able to, with, to quench the fiery darts of the wicked. Yeah, he's still shooting at you. Take the helmet of salvation and the word of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mysteries of the gospel. In those scriptures, verse 13 and 4, 14, 13 and 14 says, Take heed to stand, and then stand therefore. Yes, there'll be opposition. Yes, they're coming after you. But God knows the end before the beginning. And he wants us to stand, be the child of God, willing to serve in the face of all the wows, in verse number 11 he talked about, or the schemes or the plans of the devil. If you'll walk with God, the devil can't touch you. Amen? Verse 19, I like this one, but I want you to read it with me one more time. And I want to take it out, if you would, when you read it, the me and I, wherever you see me or I, Paul's talking about himself there. But I want you to put your name in instead. He says, And for that utterance may be given unto that May, be, may open my mouth boldly to make known the ministry to make known the mystery of the gospel. If you take his name out, put your name in, you'll find that God has a calling for you that's the same calling he had for Paul when he was writing to the Ephesians. Amen? If we do things a righteous way, the only way we know how to do it will get us to where we need to get to with God. Actually, doing a righteous thing is the only way to get to heaven. Romans 8.28 says, And all things work together for good to them that love God and to them that are the called according to his purpose. You see, God knows the end before the beginning. Let's make sure we stand on the right side of history when our story is told for generations to come. And remember, Jesus never said it'd be easy, just worth it.